Uh, it's so great to be back in Noblesville again, see so many good friends. Uh, I'm, I, thanks for having me back. Uh, if you don't know, uh, we're a multi-site church. Genesis Church is one church in two locations, and uh, we have been here in Noblesville for about s- almost eight years now. But we launched our Carmel campus, well, actually two years ago this week. We celebrated our two-year anniversary this week of having a second location in Carmel, and I'm the campus pastor there, as Ben said. Um, and so thanks for that. Thanks for your help. Uh, in getting that campus up and going. We are running uh, right around 300 people over there. We took 130 of uh, the Noblesville folks with us two years ago, and we're running right about 300. So incredible uh, growth, great things happen in Carmel. I love those people there, but still a special place in my heart here. Some of my best friends in the world are here. Uh, Ben and Paul are two of my best friends in the world, and so I'm so glad uh, to be part of one church. We really do act as one church. It's hard sometimes to, you know, be here on Sunday morning and not even think about, it's easy to not even think about what's going on in Carmel, but we, uh, we worship at the same times. We celebrate at the same times. Right now, Paul is over there um, giving a message to, to the people over in Carmel. So we're in the third week of this series called Making Room for Life, and what we've been talking about is how busy we are. And it's amazing it, to me as a society that we have every time-saving device that you can imagine. And we're still really busy. I mean, so we do things to try to uh, overcome our busyness to make us more productive, right? So that's why, we, that's why we text and drive. Don't do that. I'm not encouraging that, but I hear they don't give tickets for it anyway. Uh, I drive by people all the time who are texting and driving. But that's why we do it, right? We're trying to save time. We're trying to do two things at once. I uh, just in the last couple of weeks got a new car, well, a used car, but it's new to me. And it has that um, voice-activated Bluetooth system. I think this is a real time-saving device. I can butt-dial somebody without ever having to sit on my phone. I can call somebody on accident. <laughs> like, like uh, I would say, uh, play Bastille, Pompeii. Do you want to call Torres, Jose? No, no, no. Beep, boop, 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 boop. No, hang up. You know, like, it's such a time-saver. Oh, hi, Jose. I just, uh, yeah, no, I just wanted to say hi. Okay, I'm glad. I didn't even have to call you, you know. You go get your oil changed at the 10-minute oil change place, and they have 75 magazines, and the TV news is on. It's going to take 10 minutes. I mean, how much reading can I get done in 10 minutes? I don't know, but we're so used to multitasking. You can check your email anywhere. You can check your email on a plane. Remember when the plane was the only uh, place that you had that you could get away from that stuff? We can check your email on a plane. You can check it at a restaurant. Anybody ever parked outside a restaurant just to get the free Wi-Fi so you could check your email? Anybody willing to admit that, you know? Uh, how about this? You ever check your... I'm not going to ask it that way. Let me ask this way. When you go to the restroom, if you leave your phone behind, is it a tragedy to you <laughs> that you're losing that time? Okay, never mind. Don't answer that. Don't raise your hand. We, what we've been saying in this series is this, that we all have limited time. Like, there, there's no question that we have limited time. We each have 24 hours a day. We only have so much capacity. And, and we've talked about this in the way that we have this jar, right? And this jar represents all of our time we have. All of us have limited time. And what we've said in the first week, we said that all of our time will be spent doing something, right? That when you get to the end of your life, you'll look back and all of your time will have been spent. And it will be spent doing something. And then we said that someone will determine how you spend all of your time. Right? There's no question about that. Somebody's going to determine, you know, and so we said, if somebody's going to determine how we spend our time, why shouldn't it be me? Why, why shouldn't I determine how I'm going to spend my time? And so we've been talking about the uh, difference between urgent things and important things. Has Paul shared this with you guys yet? That, that the important things are the things you need to get done the most, 
and the urgent things are the things you need to get done now, right? So urgent things aren't always important, but sometimes we jump at them and we react them. And as we've filled this jar, what we said is this. I don't know how, how you guys can see this or not in the back. This is a big room. But like this rice, these grains of rice at the bottom represent the urgent things. They're the, the stuff that happens during the week. And so often we get up in the morning and we, we start living life and we start to fill this jar of time with the urgent things, right? This is good stuff, but it's also useless stuff. You know, there's all kinds of things in the urgent. And then what happens is we get to where we realize we need uh, some important things, like these orange golf balls in here. Like we need these important things, and we don't always have time for the important things. And then we get to the end, and we try to stuff everything in the jar, but we realize that when we represent, when we, when we respond to the tyranny of the urgent first, we don't always have time to get the important things done. So we'll get to the end of the week, and we'll make a comment like, where did all that time go? Well, a lot of that time is down here. It's in the urgent stuff. And so the, uh, the, the, the golf balls and tennis balls, they represent the important things uh, like our health and like, uh, you know, the, that education that we're going after and like our family life, our marriage, things like that. And then we've said, you know, that, that there are two things that so far. We've talked about two things, right, that God has called us to make the most important. And we'll talk about those. But, but here's Here's what I think God wants to do most in our life and most in, uh, in uh, you know, with our time is he wants us to make him the number one priority. And when we put him first, what's going to happen is he's not going to magically give us more time. All right, you don't, putting God first doesn't mean you get a bigger jar, right? But we start to make our, uh, the number one priorities the number one priorities. What happens is that some things are probably going to escape from the jar, but it's not going to be the important things. That's the key there. You know, when we follow Jesus and the example he sets for us, we get our priorities straight. And so that anything that gets left out of the jar is the urgent stuff at the bottom and not the important stuff that's at the top right here, right? It's the stuff that doesn't matter as much. So, so what we're saying is if you make God your first priority and then you start to put the important things in the jar first, then, well, you may not check Facebook as much, right? You may not play as much Candy Crush or tweet as much as you do now or, or maybe you won't watch as much of The Bachelor, but that you'll have a full life. And not a life that's full of things to do, but a, the life that Jesus calls us to in John 10.10, 10, where he says, I came so that they might have life and have it to the full. And so we're talking about how to make life work. It's really a series about priorities. And we started this series by talking about the one thing that shouldn't get left out, right? We talked about the one thing, the most important thing, and that is your relationship with God. And what we said in that first week is that if you're a Christian, that's the most important relationship you have. And that if you're not a Christian, it's the most important relationship that you're missing, right? And, and so we challenge you to make celebrating the work of God in your life a priority. And there were some ways that we can do that. Paul challenged all of us to come and celebrate at Genesis every week for the four weeks of the series. How many of you have been here every week so far? Anybody been here every week? Good for you guys. Way to go. Uh, and and uh, so there's no guilt if you haven't done that. If you missed the first week, you wouldn't have known you got challenged to be here every week anyway. But if you have, that's awesome. Now, first week, I also challenged my congregation with one other thing, to be here on time. You know, our services are at 9.30 and 11.15. We only have, we do our very best to keep this service to 65 or 70 minutes every week. Now, every once in a while, especially at Carmel, we will tend to go a little bit long and I will hear about it from the Gen Kids people. A couple weeks ago, we went 75 minutes. I had a volunteer come into the office on Tuesday morning and said, what the heck went on in there? 
what were you guys doing? Like, I was dying back there. We went so long. And I was like, so long? We went five minutes over. I said, the Holy Spirit was just moving in that room. And she said, well, you know what? The Holy Spirit doesn't move like that in Gen Kids, so you need to hurry it up, Buster. (laughs) But if we only have 65 or 70 minutes, what that means in this room is that everything that we do matters. We try to make everything that we do in here matter and make the best use of your time. And so we have had several occasions in a programming meeting where we said, hey, why don't we start the service with announcements? And then we kind of look at each other and go, well, nobody will be there to hear them. They're all in the cafe, right? Well, we love what happens in the cafe. We love the relationships that happen there. That all matters. But what I challenge my congregation with is what, ma- what happens in here too matters too. And so we know you like to get here and you got to get your kids checked in, right? Well, Gen Kids opens 15 minutes before every service. And we know you want to get your bagel and coffee. Well, our cafe opens at 9 o'clock. And so I really challenged our group to make an effort to be here at, in your seat at 9.30 or 11.15 when the service starts. And then last week we talked about uh, how Jesus says the, uh, how important it is for followers of Jesus to make time for people. You know, what did Jesus say? He said, love the Lord your God with all your heart and your soul and your strength. And he said, a second one is like it, right? It's like it. It's the same thing. A second one is like it, and that's love your neighbor as yourself. And so, in other words, invest in people, people from your church, people from your neighborhood, people from your workplace, the people around you. And we talked about community. Now, Carmel, I had all of our church moved together to the center aisle, to the center uh, section, so they were all touching shoulder to shoulder. I'm standing here talking, I'm realizing you guys are all really glad that you're at Noblesville right now, because like, man, he's really tough on them. But we, we wanted to talk about community, so we wanted to know what it was like to be in community and talk about how you can reach the people that are sitting in the seat next to you, how important it is to be in that relationship. And the challenge last week was to join a group. And so we talked about, and Ben just talked about, we've got some groups starting today. You can register for groups online, and, and they start in a few weeks. And so we want to challenge you. Get in a group. If you're not already in a group, get in a group. Get, you know, we challenge you to get some deeper one-on-one relationships. But the motivation for celebrating and the motivation for connecting isn't about what the church needs from you. It's not about padding our numbers or, or you know, counting how many people we have in a group. It's not out of guilt that we want to do that. Instead, it's because we have this great example of Jesus Christ and how he put his relationship with God first, and then he made room for people. And so today, we want to spend some time talking about something else that Jesus was adamant about making room for, and that's making room for mission. You know, what does it look like to be used by God, and what can, we ch- what can change when we use our God-given gifts and our resources, not just to make a difference, but to make the world different? And so I want to take a look at a story from the life of Jesus today. So if you have your Bibles, we're going to go to Luke chapter 14. Uh, If you don't have a Bible, uh, there should be one that looks like this laying around you somewhere. You can pick that up. It's on page 729 of that Bible. Uh, If you have your own Bible, I can't help you with the page number, but Luke is uh, in the New Testament, near the beginning of the New Testament. Luke chapter 14, we're going to start with verse 25, Luke 14, 25. Large crowds were traveling with Jesus. Now, and at this point in his ministry, uh, more and more people are coming to Jesus. They, they came to see miracles and to experience his compassion and hear his compelling teaching. And so Luke records that he's drawing huge crowds. Most of these people aren't going home. They're following him from place to place. So he, he was drawing uh, large, crowd, large crowds, were traveling with Jesus, and turning to him, they, or turning to them, he said, if anyone comes to me and does not hate father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, even their own life, 
such a person cannot be my disciple. And whoever does not carry their cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. Suppose one of you wants to build a tower. Won't you first sit down and estimate the cost to see if you have enough money to complete it? For if you lay the foundation and are not able to finish it, everyone who sees, you will ri- sees it will ridicule you, saying, this person began to build and wasn't able to finish. And then it goes on. Or suppose a king is about to go to war against another king. Won't he first sit down and consider whether he is able with 10,000 men to oppose one coming against him with 20,000? If he is not able, he will send a delegation while the other is still a long way off and will ask for terms of peace. In the same way, those of you who do not give up everything you have cannot be to my disciples. Huh? When the crowds heard that, most people started thinking what you're thinking now. This is Jesus? He talks all the time about loving people and having compassion for people. It's the whole basis for the message we talked about last week was Jesus said, love your neighbor as yourself. I mean, he commands us to love others, and now he's saying that we should hate people. And not just any people, but look who he's talking about. He's talking about dad and mom and my dear sweet grandma, Aunt Polly and Uncle Bob, you know, and ourselves. We titled this message today, Making Room for Mission, because we thought how to hate your mama probably wouldn't draw a very good crowd. I mean, those of you who want to know that message probably already know how to hate your mama, and the rest of you think we're insensitive dopes right now. But that's one way to run off a crowd, right? To talk about how to hate your mama. The other way is to talk about giving. And so we could do one of those two things. We're not going to do that. Did Jesus really say, I have to hate my family? Well, no. He's not suggesting that you become a hater. Instead, Jesus is using this uh, common teaching method uh, whereby he would say something shocking as a way to emphasize the point he was trying to make and to get people's attention. So, for example, one time, another time, Jesus said this in Matthew 18. He said, and if your eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out and throw it away. It's better for you to enter life with one eye than to have two eyes and be thrown into the fire of hell. Jesus wasn't really suggesting that somebody take a butter knife and gouge their eye out. But what he's saying is, hey, don't take sin lightly. You know, including what you choose to look at, all sin is serious. God despises sin. I mean, it's, it's like when we say uh, something like, well, I would kill for a Twinkie right now. Right? Chances are you probably wouldn't kill for a Twinkie, right? I mean, I know Twinkies are good, but if you were being literal, that would mean if I'm carrying a box of Hostess cakes in my hand, I better watch out because you're going to go all psycho shower scene on me, right? Now, that's not what you mean when you say I would kill for a Twinkie right now. Well, when Jesus says... It's better to gouge out your right eye. He's saying, hey, take that seriously. So when Jesus talks about hating the most important people in our lives in order to follow him, what's he really saying? He's saying being on mission for me is a really big priority. You know, our mission at Genesis Church is helping people find their way back to God. And living on mission for us isn't just something we do on Sundays. It's not just some good deeds once in a while so we don't feel guilty. Jesus is saying, I want following, to me, following me to be of such importance to you that it would seem like nothing else in your life would even come close in comparison. And so he's not just talking to pastors. He's not just talking to missionaries and for people who have a little extra time they don't know what to do with. He's talking to you. He's talking to moms and dads. He's talking to executives and blue-collar workers. He's talking to college students and to high school dropouts. He's talking to married people and single people and divorced people and separated people. He's talking to anyone and everyone who's willing to listen to him. 
Here, here's another example of where Jesus uses this teaching technique. In Luke 14, 27, just a little later, he says, And whoever does not carry their cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. Now, is Jesus saying that every disciple is going to be crucified for their faith to matter? No. But what he's saying is being on mission for him is going to require us to make some difficult sacrifices we might not otherwise have to make. John Oros was a church leader in Romania during the communist era. If you're too young to remember, you should know that Romania was part of the Soviet Union until it collapsed in 1989. It was ruled by the Communist Party, which was strictly anti-religion. Officially, they had an official anti-religion policy. And Oros described the difficulty of leading people to Christ in this environment. He said, during communism, many of us preached, and people came at the end of the service, and they said, I've decided to become a Christian. We told them, it's good that you want to become a Christian, but we'd like to tell you that there's a price to be paid. Why don't you reconsider what you want to do? Because many things can happen to you. You can lose, and you can lose big. From there, Oros described how a high percentage of them chose to take part in a three-month class that they offered in the Romanian church to better understand this decision they were making. And John says, at the end of this period, many participants declared their desire to be baptized. Typically, I would respond, it's really nice that you want to become a Christian, but when you give your testimony, there will be informers who will jot down your name. Tomorrow's problems will, will start. Count the cost. Christianity is not easy. It's not cheap. You can be demoted, you can lose your job, you can lose your friends, you can lose your neighbors, you can lose your kids, you can even lose your own life. John Oros wanted people to get to a point where following Jesus was so important to them that if they lost everything, it would be worth it. That's what Jesus is trying to get out. So, so Jesus says, you must carry your cross and follow me. And then he goes on to say in verse 28, suppose one of you wants to build a tower. Won't you first sit down and estimate the cost to see if you have enough money to complete it? For if you lay the foundation and you're not able to finish it, everyone who sees it will ridicule, ridicule you, saying, this person began to build and wasn't able to finish. Those were strong words when Jesus spoke them. A person's reputation meant everything. For many people, that was all they had. It was priceless. And so one of the worst things that could happen to someone was to publicly humiliate themselves by starting something and not being able to finish it. And so Jesus is basically saying, don't take this matter lightly. Following me is going to cost you something. It's not pain-free. It's not a trouble-free life. And so count the cost before you say yes. You know, today in the Western church, we've set the bar really, really low to follow Christ. We said, you know, you just say these words, just pray this prayer, and it's okay. Nothing really needs to change about your life. But the truth is, what Jesus is saying here is he wants to call us to something so much more than what our life is now. He wants us to have a full life, an abundant life. But he reminds us that's going to come at the cost of our current schedule and our current comfort and our current leisure. I mean, grace is free, but you still have to count the cost. And so he goes on, verse 31. Or suppose a king is about to go to war against another king. Won't he first sit down and consider whether he is able with 10,000 men to oppose the one coming at him with 20,000? If he's not able, he will send a delegation while the other is still a long way off and will ask for terms of peace. He, he says, wouldn't a wise king, when he realizes he's outnumbered, I mean, think seriously about his actions? Should he fight or seek peace? Would he risk the lives of 10,000 men knowing that he was headed into certain defeat? Well, a wise king wouldn't. I mean, to rush battle without first considering the options could bring disaster on his nation. 
far better to think through it beforehand. Again, another challenge, warning from Jesus to carefully consider their actions. Just in case all these strong words and all these strong examples weren't enough, Jesus tops it off by saying, those of you who do not give up everything you have cannot be my my disciples. And no, that doesn't mean it's a requirement to sell everything you own and give all your money away. He's not saying that. But he is saying, don't follow me if you're not willing to do that if I ask you to. Why the tough language? Why all the hate your mom and carry your cross and give away all you have? Here's why. Jesus didn't come into this world to make it a little bit better place. He didn't come to make the world a little nicer and a little more loving. Jesus came to turn the world upside down. At one point he said, I didn't come to bring peace to the earth, but a sword. He came to return the world to what it was meant to be. He came to set things right. You don't have to look very far in this world to see this world ain't right. He came to reach people who are far from God and to restore relationships and to heal wounds and to feed the poor and set the prisoners free. And so Jesus is using the most in-your-face language he could to say, hey, I'm calling you to join me in changing the world. And he says, and that's not going to happen if you just free up a little space in your jar for a little bit of Jesus here and there. He says, it's going to cost everything you have. It's going to take everything you are. And you know what happened next? People walked away. This how to hate your mama message ran people off. Because so many times, Jesus would teach about these tough subjects and the crowds would turn and walk away. They, They weren't up for it. The price was too high. And this week as I was thinking about that, I was a little bit convicted by that because as I watch our church grow bigger and bigger, I'm worried that part of the reason is that we don't call people to the same big, tough, important mission that Jesus called people to. But do you know what else happened? Some people stayed. A small group of men and women who were both intrigued and curious, they kept following They kept watching and listening and considering and practicing. And and not too long after Jesus said these things, he went and modeled them. He, He went to the cross and he gave his life. He defeated sin and death. He offered a way to forgiveness and a way for us to have a relationship with God. Three days after he died, he rose again from the dead. And these men and women were witnesses to that fact. And then 40 days after his resurrection, Jesus ascended into heaven. And not too long after that, he sent the Holy Spirit who came to live in the hearts and the lives of these followers. And these men and women, the brave ones who stayed behind, got to witness all of that. They saw with their own eyes how Jesus was dead. And then he wasn't dead. And then, like, beam me up, Scotty. He went up into heaven. And from there, this living on mission really got going. These men and women, these disciples, they couldn't keep it in. And so they they met together, and they prayed together, and they worshiped together, and they told their stories about salvation and grace with friends and neighbors. When rough times hit, they kept turning to God, and many of them picked up and moved away from Jerusalem and into various areas of the world. And they didn't know all the answers. They didn't even have the Bible yet. They couldn't tell you why bad things happened to good people or was the world really created in seven days or was there really an ark. They didn't know. All they had was their story. They had the story of what Jesus had done in their lives and because they were on mission and other people have followed them, we're here today. 
We're here today because those who have gone before us have made that decision, that commitment to live on mission for Jesus Christ. They were able to live on mission for Jesus because they allowed the power and the truth of the gospel to take hold of their life. Friends, you and I are called to live on mission for Jesus. And your ability and my ability to live on mission for him flows from our understanding of what God has done through us in Jesus Christ. It's it's like Josh was talking about up here earlier with that verse from Ephesians. But God, who is rich in mercy, while we were in our trespasses, reached in and saved us. I was once far from God, but I'm finding my way back to him through Jesus. You may notice that at Genesis, we tend to use the word follower of Jesus uh, more than we use the word Christian. The main reason for that is we believe that Jesus calls us not just to identify with him, but to follow him and go where he would go and do what he would do. Jesus has called us to follow him. Before we close, I want to take one broad pass through what that means, and and, and then I want to challenge you with a couple of things specific to Genesis Church. And it's this, and these are in your notes if you want to write these down. Uh, Following Jesus means everyone, everything, everywhere. So first, it's everyone. His invitation is to everyone. Everyone can come. He invites everyone to come. It doesn't matter who you are or what you've done. Jesus has invited you into his mission. It's that person you don't ever think could walk with Christ, that family member who constantly makes bad choices, that neighbor you hear cussing a blue streak from his garage. Some of the most fierce advocates for Jesus were his toughest opponents yesterday. I mean, Matthew was a tax collector. He was despised by everybody around him. Paul killed Christians. God can use anybody. Second is, it's everything. Everything you are, everything you have, it's your gifts, your talents, your abilities, your money. Yes, it's important to help us continue in our mission, so give to your local church, not out of guilt or obligation, not in response to one more stat on how few Christians actually tithe, but because it's part, it's part of everything you have. And third, it's everywhere. It's at home, at work, at school, on your team. Your life is a mission. The people in your life are coming into your life for a reason. They're not there by accident. Some of the greatest stories of life change I've heard this year came from our Spring Hill camp, which happened just a few weeks ago right here at the Noblesville campus. Uh, My family, my wife in particular, invited eight kids from our street, um, besides our daughter, to come to Spring Hill camp. And uh, just the stories that I've heard in in the few weeks since that happened have been incredible. I I remember uh, the first night after camp was over, one of the boys that we brought um, got a Bible. And it was the, the first Bible that was his. And he had all the camp counselors sign the front of his Bible. I don't think that's sacrilegious. I think that's okay. Um, it really meant a lot to him. And so uh, on the drive home, he and his friend were reading the Bible to each other. And you could see these kids that have never been in the Bible and they were reading it to each other. And then the first day of school, he came to the bus stop and he had his Bible, his backpack, his lunchbox and his Bible under his arm. And I asked his mom, I said, has he been reading that? Oh, he takes it with him everywhere. He won't let it go. And I was just so moved by the way that that camp influenced our kids. I I remember the first day of school, all I had to do was say, this is a repeat after me song. And the kids go, this is a repeat after me song. And one of the little girls, a little third grader on our bus stop, fourth grader, I guess now, started leading all the kids into camp songs. And there were uh, a few kids that didn't come to camp, but there were enough there that they all knew them that they started leading through these songs that they learned at camp. It was so cool. And then on the second day of school, one of the moms came up to me and said uh, um, to her daughter, hey, do you want to tell Mr. Steve your good news? And I said, well, what's the good news? And finally, she told me that her first grader had asked Jesus into her heart. And in a couple weeks at their church, he's going to be baptized. It's everyone. 
It's everything. It's everywhere. Why? Because he gave his life. Because he saved me. Because God was so rich in mercy. That's my motivation. That's my passion for living on mission for Jesus. So here's the challenge. Here's the challenge that we're challenging our whole church, both campuses, to this week. I want you to serve, to sign up to serve, if you're not already, two hours a month on a ministry team here at Genesis Church. Now, I know that that sounds like a really, really small step when we talk about giving everything. That's exactly the point. Some of you have been coming for months or years, and you've never served because it seems like such an inconvenience. But when you look at it through the lens of everything, it's really not that much at all. Two hours a month. So we're not going to ask you to fill out a card or go online. There are people today out in the lobby, actual real people, out in the lobby today at two tables right next to these doors from our Gen Kids team and our host team. They will be there again right after this service. They would love to talk to you about joining their teams and having a kingdom impact. And if you sign up for a team today, we're going to celebrate that with some noisemakers and some balloons. I'll probably want to take a selfie with you. Uh, and they've got a small gift for you. You'll be treated like a celebrity because you are. If you serve in God's church, then what you do matters. Now, is this the only place you can serve? No, I mean, you might volunteer with Habitat or with inner city kids at Shepherd Community Center, with the homeless down at Wheeler Mission. Maybe there are other causes you're equally passionate about. That's great. But Christ wants you to be passionate about his church too. It's it's his bride, and it's one way that you can respond to the great love and grace that he's shown you. Because if you're a follower of Christ, he reached down into that pit you were in at some point in your life and pulled you out. And if he did that for you, what can you possibly do to repay him? I mean, you can't, you can't make up for that with a little bit of money dropped in the offering bag when it comes by or a little bit of service time. But out of response to his great love, you could really start to care about the things and the people that he cares about. See, we can come up with all kinds of clever campaigns about why you should serve and present you with opportunities to invest in our church and in young people and talk about how what you do matters. And that, that's all true. And we could present the need to you and let you know how many spots we have available on certain ministry teams and that you need to fill them, and that's true too. But your desire to serve has to be born out of more than just guilt. It has to be born out of a response to the great love that Christ showed for you when he saved you. Because if you're serving as a response to guilt or a feeling of obligation, here's what's going to happen. We know this because we've done it before. A whole bunch of you will sign up. And then about half of you will sign up for training, or show up for training. And then about 10% of you will serve for any length of time. We know, we've done it before. But when you think about the gospel of Jesus and what he's done for you, I mean, you didn't see Jesus die. You didn't see him come back to life. You didn't get to feel the wounds in his hands and feel the wounds in his side. You didn't get to watch him ascend into heaven. But you know, you know how he's changed your life, how he saved you. You see the difference he's made. And your service should be a direct response, a personal response to that gift he gave you. One time in in response to some really tough teaching, many of the disciples abandoned Jesus. They they walked away and Jesus turns around and he sees that there are 12 still standing there, the 12. And he asks them, "What, what about you? Will you walk away too? And Peter, who we love to make fun of in the church, has this deep and profound answer. He says, Lord, to whom should we go? You alone have the words of eternal life. And that's the Jesus we get to celebrate together. Would you pray with me? Lord Jesus, we 
We don't have the words or the actions to respond to the great love you showed for us. But God, who is rich in mercy, while we were dead in our trespasses, you reached down and you saved us. Now to response to that, we just want to celebrate that today. We just want to remember that sacrifice you made on the cross, Lord. We thank you for the the bread that you held up as a representative of your body broken for us and for the wine that you held up as a representative of your blood that spilled for us. Lord, as we celebrate today, we just want to remember that sacrifice that you made. Thank you for going to the cross to die for our sin and thank you that it didn't end there, that you rose from the dead to show us that we can overcome anything in our lives, God. And so we celebrate that today as a church family. We thank you and we praise you in Jesus' name.